HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by the International Culinary Center, offering courses that range from classic French techniques in culinary, pastry, and bread baking to Italian studies to management, from culinary technology to food writing, from cake making to wine tasting. For more information, visit internationalculinarycenter.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good morning. You're listening to In the Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org, coming to you live from Roberta's Restaurant out in Bushwick. We're here in the shipping container this morning with a good friend of mine, Thomas Pastujic. He is the beverage director of the Nomad Restaurant um, and a really good friend. Welcome, Thomas. Thank you so much, Joe. Thanks for having me. It's good to have you, man. I'm going to uh, catch everyone up a little bit on on your bio, how you've gone into uh into the whole wine world. You're uh, a native New Yorker, um, got the first taste of, uh, of the hospitality industry at your grandfather's bed and breakfast in Shelter Island. Is that correct? Yep, my godfather's, yep. Your godfather's bed and breakfast in Shelter Island. And then um, went, to, went to Cornell University up in Ithaca studying uh, not at the hospitality school, but start, yep. what were you studying up there? <laughs> yep, definitely not, I didn't go into hospitality. That was not the intention. Um, I was neurobio, I was, had a track to go into medical school, um, also come from a classical piano background, which I was studying. So tried to balance those two things uh, going through college. And, uh, you know, very quickly afterwards realized that my, my true passion lied in food and wine. So you were, you were studying neurobiology. I always have this idea of you as this, like, uh, superhero brain surgeon who also, like, plays <laughs> classical piano to uh, calm, down your <laughs> calm down your patients. Totally. That, w- that would be the way that I would do it, too. I would definitely have uh, used, used music to, uh, you know, influence my patients for sure. And myself, too. I mean, it's a great relaxation. But, um, you know, as I said, that was, uh, that, that was the track. That was the direction I was going to go in. And, you know, the more I learned about food and wine, the more I got involved. I was like, you know what? Medicine is there. I, I want to go back to it. I definitely can. Um, you know, I have all of the prerequisites to go in that direction. But I said, you know, there's so much going on in the food and wine world. Um, I figured I would see what I could do and go from there. Yeah, and I'm sure that, you know, at, at Cornell, that, which is a safety school, um, you had plenty of free time while studying <laughs> neurobiology. 
you know, to 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 explore your food and oh, wine man. passion. It was great actually because my brother, um, he was living in San Francisco. He was actually doing his MD PhD, and so I would go out and visit. And um, you know, that's where I really started to discover some of the wine regions in Napa and Sonoma. But that was like you know once, maybe twice a year. Um, obviously, there's the great uh, wine region where Cornell is, the Finger Lakes. So I got some good exposure there. But it was like I would be at school, you know, going through classes five days a week, and then you know, I would hit the weekend and be in restaurants like from Friday at like five until Saturday, uh, going into Sunday morning at like 2 a.m. And then like kind of try to recover on Sunday and get homework done. So I was, you know, nonstop. It was a lot of fun, though. So you were working in restaurants at the time at, at Stella's and uh, at Olivia. Exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, two really cool restaurants in, in the Ithaca area, um, one based more in the College Town area. And then the other one, which was sort of in the East Hill area, a little bit closer to some of the farms. Um, both were sort of fine dining American bistro, um, really modern design restaurants that were very focused on, um, you know, on local food, on sustainability. And so that was also actually a great influence on me initially in terms of, you know, really looking to support the local economy and find what's best that's close by. And you worked your way up from uh, bartender to bar manager mm-hmm. to general manager Director of operations. <laughs> yeah, it was it was a, it was great because it was a growing company. There was a lot of room for growth, and I think in part the opportunities that were sort of put in front of me, you know, helped to give me a realization that you know this is an industry where um, if you're loyal, if you you know work diligently, if there's a cause that you feel passionately about and you pursue it, um, you know, the opportunities can be potentially endless. So um, it was a great growth experience for me. And one of the things that I that I respect so much about you is the way you've brought that that passion and that cause down into some of your lists here in New York. I know when you started at uh, at Calico and Sons, um, you really revamped that list, and I, and I really loved what you did there and how you brought a lot of the relationships, a lot of the Finger Lakes wines that you had uh, that you had come to love during that time there. Tell us a little bit about. What draw, what what's drawn you so much to the Finger Lakes? Is it just the proximity to New York, or is there something else that's going on? You know, I think it's an interesting story because it's changing all the time. Um, it's a region that unfortunately has a you know a bad reputation for you know making a lot of bulk wine, um, you know ceremonial wine. Um, there's a lot of you know history of poor winemaking there because there wasn't as much of the influence of Euro- European culture there um, initially. But it has changed so much in the course of the last few decades, um, especially so in the course of the last ten years, that it's that sort of upward swing that was so exciting to me. It's kind of almost like you know the underdog uh, sort of situation where you have this area. That's given a bad rep, but then when you see people, you know, making uh, a few small examples of really world-class wine, you can't help but get excited about that and think about the potential of the region. So that was an initial draw, also the proximity, and, you know, at the point where I was coming back to New York City, um, as you mentioned, my hometown, there was a, a small group of producers who were making some really killer wines, and I was like, you know what, it's a shame that nobody knows about these wines uh, down in New York, so I took it upon myself to, you know, really try to get those producers' wines down here, get them represented, and really, you know, put them on the list where I could show them to guests, blind taste them, you know, with sommeliers and other people and say, hey, you guessed this was, you know, Austrian dry Riesling, you know, from this reputable producer, or, oh, you thought this was Alsace, but, you know, in fact, it's actually just from 200 miles away from here, and we have this great resource that we're not really, you know, utilizing. So, I, I always thought that was re- a very interesting disconnect, how if you're in San Francisco... California wines abound on the wine list there. 
Portland, same same idea, right? But when you're in New York, it's really hard to find New York wines, and we have we have kind of two wine regions, right? We have Long Island, the North Fork, and the Hamptons, and then mm-hmm. uh, and then the Finger Lakes. And why? What do you think caused that that disconnect? And and do you think it, do you see it changing? You know, it's funny because you're you're absolutely right. Um, I always thought it was fairly uh, interesting that there were so many produce so many uh, restaurants and you know food and wine personalities in new york who were all like oh you know go local support local oh i got this from this farm and it's only you know 50 miles north of here i got this from this farm and it's you know 200 miles north from here but that same approach wasn't taken to you know the wines that are local um with that being said I don't personally support local just for the sake of supporting local. You know, I believe that the quality needs to exist, and that's why, you know, a lot of the great chefs in this area, you know, find great produce and are able to feature them on their menu. So that should be the first, you know, the the biggest priority. It should be that the quality needs to be there. With that being said, you know, as I mentioned, there hasn't been a very long history of high-quality fine winemaking in the area. And I think that's just starting to come together. And with that, and with this, you know, resurgence of new producers, um, of offshoot producers, of influence of European producers coming to the area and making great wine, I think that the golden age is now, that's to say, we're entering this era of, you know, fine winemaking in the New York region. And I think there's great potential for it. It just needs to be tapped correctly. And so what are some of the, the landmarks that you've noticed that, like, this was an important thing and now New York wine is on the next level? Um, for instance, I, I know that they, not too long ago, created a, 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 a kind of a, a wine map, a wine road, where it's mm-hmm. easier um, to go from one winery to another. Uh, what are some things like that that you think were, were important for New York's development in, uh, in wine? You know, <clears throat> I think it's it's multifaceted. I think the fact that we had this, you know, stress on vinifera varietals, European varietals like Riesling, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, Cabernet Franc, um, you know, coming at the late period of the late 70s with uh, producers look, like Hermann Wiemer, uh, Dr. Constantine Franc, and then um, there was a positive response from the wine industry, um, it was slow but steady. Uh, that sort of, you know, brought a few other producers to start planting those varietals. Um, then you see, in the course of the '80s and the '90s, a few more producers focusing on those varietals and getting more positive response. Um, that sort of, you know, sort of pushed it into the next generation, the turn of the century, where you now have um, this real focus on boutique producers who whose vines are just now starting to hit a good point of maturity and are now starting to make really fine wine, I think it's been this sort of slow but, you know, constant reassurance that, hey, you know, these are the type of wines that people who love fine wine from the greatest regions in the world want to drink. So if there is this support from the community, from the wine community and the restaurant community, um, you know, there's no other direction to go but to make more of these fine wines. And I think, you know, to that end, I consider myself an ambassador for the region because not that I think it's at its very best right now, but because there's tremendous potential there. And I think the sort of realization is having more people to support it, like you, like me, you know, finding those wines and saying, this is great, more wine like this needs to be made.
Yeah, and you can definitely find both of those producers, uh, Weimer and, and Dr. Constantine Frank at uh, at at La Picho, as well as a few others. We have uh, the Keuka Lakes Vineyard mm-hmm. with Mel uh, Mel Goldberg. I call him up, and I swear to you, he drives down in his car to I deliver know. the wine. It's funny. I was I, I was actually having a conversation with him yesterday because he makes great Riesling, you know, really really fun Vignole, which I'm a big fan of, and it's incredible. He still, you know, he drives it down every time you need an order because you know he's not. That's an example of a production that's not very sizable, um, and you know it's amazing that he just you know takes it upon himself to pack his van and drive it down to his you know to the people who are supporting him. Yeah, and I think you made a really good point as well. If, if there are some producers that you really like, some some producers that you think are, are very high quality, the 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 age of those vines is still so young. Quality wine has been made in the Finger Lakes for such a short amount of time that if you're enjoying these wines now, they're only going to get better over the next few years as those vines become a little bit more mature as as the as the as they become a little bit less productive absolutely um it's really interesting because um actually just yesterday i was uh watching a screening of terry thesis new movie uh leading between the vines and um you know it really talks about these great producers in germany you know through different regions um it talks about their history the the vineyards that they have and you know they have some incredibly old vines you know some upwards of a hundred years and we talk about vineyard age you know in the wine industry and obviously that's an important factor for quality of wine um when you think about also wine culture you have hundreds of years uh worth of experience at some of these estates in the great regions of france in italy in germany and austria um you know here locally you have a few decades. And to that end, you have vines which have been planted, you know, maybe in the course of the last decade, some which are 20, 30 years old, very few that are older than that. So in the world, you know, in the world context, um, you know, these regions that we have close by to us are total infants. And there's something really beautiful about that because um, there's this untapped potential, as I mentioned before, and you know that great things are going to come from it because it's so young and the region is just starting to learn what it can do. So if if our listeners were going to perhaps plan a trip up to the Finger Lakes, it's not it's not a day trip like going out to the Hamptons. But right. What are, what are some of the tips that you plan? How would you attack doing a wine trip specifically up to the Finger Lakes? You know, I've thought that I thought about that a lot because again, I have a lot of friends at these wineries. Um, specifically, the Finger Lakes. It's it's a series of fairly long, narrow north south um, north south directional lakes. Some of them are. 30 miles long. So basically the way that I would sort of attack it is it's about, you know, a four hour drive to get up there from New York City. I would probably situate myself, you know, at the base of one of the lakes like in Ithaca, um, which is at the base of Cayuga Lake, um, you know, at which point, you know, if you have a car going up one side of the lake and visiting some of the top estates, um, you know, is the way to go, especially on Seneca Lake and Keuka Lake. And basically, you know, not overdoing it, but, you know, saying, okay, uh, I'm going to plan for this portion of the day to go up and down this portion of the lake, head back down, and then maybe hit the other side. And again, with, um, you know, really conscientious decisions as far as where you're going to visit, as in don't try to hit every single winery on, you know, the side of the lake because there's um, over a hundred in that region right now, um, then that's probably the way I would approach it. You know, choosing a lake, choosing a side, looking for the producers whose wines you may have enjoyed or, you know, who, looking for some of the producers that some of your sommelier friends or uh, some of the restaurants you'll go to support is the way that I would go about it. 
yeah, if you see it on the list at the Nomad, it's going to be it's going to be worth going to. And that, and I think that's really good advice. It's something that uh, a mistake that I've made too many times, and you, and you see it on, on too many wine trips. You're just so eager to go visit. It's so exciting. How often are you in a wine region? You want to see as much as possible. But at the end of the day, it should be something that's that's enjoyable. And if you attack it at a more leisurely pace and enjoy it, then you can really get a sense of what's going on there. Absolutely. Um, I'd also just recommend. Uh, don't go to the tasting like don't go to a winery that'll only let you in the tasting room Mm -hmm. make sure you try to uh try to to get a a tour of the vineyards and smell the air and see the dirt and and see how they train the vines because that's what's that's what's unique there you know you can taste a lot of those wines in new york and most wine cellars are 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 pretty similar there's just so many different types of of barrels and stainless steel tanks but it's the vineyards that are that are truly unique and what makes them so special absolutely and you know for those who are passionate about wine you know for myself when i was first getting into it it was actually getting into the actual vineyard getting my hands dirty you know, helping out at the wineries, which admittedly not everyone would want to do. But, you know, for me, what inspired me even more was, you know, like I said, really, as you said, smelling the air, you know, being in the vines, seeing what, uh, how much passion and work and how much love goes into, you know, those vines. That's what's truly inspiring because that's where art and science really comes together. And I guess from my background with, you know, piano and with science, um, I think that's, you know, in part why, you know, wine and, you know, the science and the art of wine is so exciting to me. Wow. Okay, so we're going to take just a quick break um, and tune in when we get back at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You're listening to the Obesity Edit of Blessed by Schoolboy Q and Kendrick Lamar on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. What is life for a nigga like me? Living out his backpack every night, needed a new place to sleep. For the bitch ass, we to get ready, cause I feel I finally did it. Force for the jealous rapper, man, because he finished. Turn that motherfucker to a critic, man, I got so much shit up on my plate, dog. The International Culinary Center is a proud sponsor of the HeritageRadioNetwork.org. The ICC, with locations in New York and California, provide cutting-edge education to future chefs, restaurateurs, and wine professionals. We're proud to claim Dan Barber, Bobby Flay, and David Chang among our honored alumni. This is Dorothy Can Hamilton from Chef's Story. Check out our ICC website at internationalculinarycenter.com. And we're back on In the Drink on heritageradionetwork.org. I'm here with my good friend Thomas Pestujic, the wine director of the Nomad Hotel and Restaurant. Uh, well, the Nomad Restaurant, is the hotel something that's a little separate, or how does that uh, all work? You know, the, the restaurant is within the hotel, but, you know, we work, the restaurant and the hotel work very closely together. All right, and we were talking uh, before the break a little bit about Thomas's love for uh, for the Finger Lakes, and um, he went to school up there, and uh, I think has a home up there as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but now I'd like to switch gears a little bit and talk a little bit about uh, what's going on in the restaurant industry today. Thomas is a, a young, a young, a strapping young gent. I think 
looks even uh, a little bit younger than he is. And uh, the the level of service that they're doing at this uh, at the Nomad is just absolutely extraordinary. Just a few months after they opened, they got three stars from New York Times. I actually brought all of my assistant beverage directors there for an end of the year thank you uh, dinner uh, because I, I truly believe in the, the quality of, of the service. I want them to see what just top level uh, wine service look like. Um, I think we, we try very hard to do that in a more casual, uh, more casual setting, but I, I think you guys do just an, an outstanding job of it. Awesome. Thanks. Uh, so tell, tell us a little bit about though uh, what you, what you view as the, as the role of the sommelier in, uh, in the fine dining restaurant, and do you think that it's uh, that's something that's changing? What What are your views on this? I have a lot of strong opinions on that. Um, you know, as as I've talked to you about before, I mean, for me personally, what got me into food and wine wasn't necessarily wine to begin with. It was the experience, and you know, creating culture and creating a hospitality experience. You know, I was very much influenced by uh, restaurateurs first and foremost, like Juniperant. Um, you know, like Danny Meyer. And, you know, just seeing what they were able to do with the restaurant community, with their staff, with their clientele, with the community of the area where their businesses were based um, was really, really inspiring for me. So I consider myself, you know, a hospitalitarian first and foremost, and that's how I approach everything. You know, it just so happened that the world of wine totally blew me away. I was, you know, mesmerized by it. And I was like, this is, you know, something incredible. And I want to pursue this, you know, with, with great passion. But I feel that, you know, the more I see in the wine world, whether it's at wineries or at the restaurant, the more I realize that, um, you know, we as sommeliers, we need to really consider our role and, you know, think about how it existed, say, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, and how it exists now and what the future is. Um, You know, to that I mean, wine is a very complicated topic. It's very daunting. And it's great to see that we have more 20-somethings, 30-somethings who are getting into wine, but it's really intimidating. And we need to be able to break down those barriers, you know, make it very accessible, make it fun, and actually make it easy, you know, for our guests to be able to enjoy wine. And I feel that, you know, the sommelier may have been viewed, you know, in the past as, you know, the person who sat in the cellar, you know, fawned over bottles, and, you know, when the guy came in who was ready to drop, you know, big money on a bottle, well, then he'd show up and, you know, he'd help sell the bottle. And, you know, that slowly evolved into a different role. And today, I think, you know, it's a responsibility for us to be able to connect with, you know, every table that we can, um, you know, to engage in those conversations and, you know, make it a great experience where we don't just, you know, allow our guests to have a great, you know, food experience, a great, you know, dining experience, but a great food and wine experience. And I think the sommelier can play an incredible role as, you know, a host, um, you know, as a hospitalitarian at the table and really amp up that experience. And I think that separates, you know, a food experience or a wine experience from, you know, an incredible one. I think that the Psalm can take it upon themselves to make that experience so memorable that when the guest leaves, you know, that fine dining experience or, you know, even that casual dining experience, they said, you know what, I really trust and I just love what just happened because I was able to create a bond, not just with the restaurant or the server, but this person, you know, who was so passionate about wine and that totally took my dining experience to the next level. Yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree with you. I, I love uh, selling a $40 bottle of wine oh, to yeah. a table of uh, people who maybe aren't so sophisticated about it, but they're, they're curious and they're interesting and they, and they want to know. Um, and one of the things that, you know, you, you guys have a very uh, 
all-encompassing list. You have some amazing off-the-bean-path, like, Corsican wine that, like, mm-hmm. oh, that's so cool. And, you know, it's just, like, bait for a sommelier who's like, oh, I want to drink that. And totally. then a lot of, like, great classic regions as well. And where do you think that the, the kind of classic regions fit in um, today when young when sommeliers, especially young sommeliers, are getting so excited about these a little more off the beaten path, less expensive kind of wines. Sure. Well, I think that you know balance is important, and also just you know recognizing what your clientele is looking for, but also you know giving them new opportunities. I think all of those things need to be sort of you know taken into consideration. So we need to understand what's great about you know Burgundy, what's great about Bordeaux and Champagne and these classic areas, and understanding why they generated the hype and why they're thought of as such amazing classic regions today. That's really important. Um, And I think that we need to understand, we have to have that sort of backbone, that basis for understanding before we can really look into these other regions and recognize what's great. Um, And I love the fact that at Nomad, you know, I have a very diverse clientele. We have guests coming from around the world. We have foodies from New York City. We have sommeliers and chefs coming in. So it's a great challenge, but, you know, a fun one to be able to find wine that sort of, you know, spans the entire spectrum. And as you mentioned, you know, it's just as exciting for me to have that, you know, $40 bottle to sell to, you know, a a couple of guests as it is to sell, you know, a $400 or a $4,000 bottle. Um, It's actually more fun to find those, you know, great wines that people know less about and, you know, and be able to experience them with guests. So do you think that there's any value in Burgundy? I think there's tremendous value in I know you said that to me and I want to I want to know more about this so it's that's it's that's actually a really exciting topic for me now you know especially as you know we're hitting the you know the early months of 2013 we have you know La Polay coming up um, which is a great celebration of Burgundy um, hosted you know in New York in San Francisco in Aspen and um, both of us will be there yes yeah yeah, absolutely so for those of you who are want to try some really great Burgundy um, check out La Polay because it's going to be a great event coming up Um, You know, but to that end, Burgundy is, I think, greatly misunderstood by a lot of people. When you when a lot of people who are getting into wine think about the word Burgundy, they think Pinot Noir and Chardonnay from this region. And if it's good, it has to be really expensive. And I don't think that's true. And I understand why a lot of people feel that way, because people are talking about the greats like Domaine de la Romaine Conti. Um, You know, people are talking Monarche when they think about great white. But there's awesome wine to be found at that low price point, you just need to have somebody on your side to help you find it. So we as sommeliers, we work with our distributors um, you know, and our resources to be able to find those great wines that we can put on our list at a really reasonable price. And then our guests benefit by coming in and us being like, hey, I have this great, you know, village level, you know, wine from this producer who's really reputable. Not many people know about it. Let me share it with you. And, you know, the best way to do that is to pour it by the glass or to, you know, have, you know, a good stock of it so you can really, you know, share it with your guests. And that's what I've sort of prided myself on in terms of the Burgundy program, you know, at the Nomad, not just high end, but a lot of really, really good, affordable wines, you know, under $100 bottle of wines, closer to $50, um, you know, that guests can come in and find. So where where in Burgundy? Is that kind of the off the bean and path areas of Burgundy? Or are there some more familiar locations that you can still find? You know, uh, I think ones. I think it's a little bit of everything. I mean, obviously, the crews of Beaujolais are you know going to be a great place. You and I both are passionate about you know great producers from you know who are making incredible Gamay and Morgon, for instance. Um, you know, the Cote Chalonnais um, and you know uh, 
Cochelan is, is certainly a good place to find great wines. But even in the really expensive regions, in the Cote de Bonne and the Cote de Nuit, where we think of, you know, the great growths, there are those top producers who are making their sort of entry-level wines from not as heralded not as heralded vineyard sites, but because it's their vines and they treat them with the same respect as their Grand Cru sites, um, but maybe label them as Bourgogne or, you know, something of a lesser appellation, that's where, you know, incredible value can be found. Okay. Um, I, I completely agree with all of that. I, I love uh, uh, great Beaujolais, and I think that any any sommelier is going to. I think that's one of those really good. Uh, it's kind of like Barbera in Italy. Totally, uh, it's it's so versatile. And if you're completely a novice, completely into it, it's like not that big of an investment. But if you know there's going to be some people who are, who like drinking wine, they they'll be able to pull out enough of it that they get really excited about good totally. Beaujolais as well. The returns are like epic when it comes to Beaujolais because you can you know buy a bottle in the store for $15 a bottle and it can be incredible and you know it's it's great because the different areas you know provide different terroir provide a different expression and producers take it upon themselves to put their own fingerprint on it too so um, I love that region as far as value is concerned so uh, to switch to your personal life a little bit so your lady is also in the industry yes yes Uh, my fiance uh, Jessica Brown she is um, currently she's the assistant general manager and the wine director at Scarpetta at Scott Condon's restaurant on uh, 14th Street. Uh, she started up there a few months ago. And uh, and Jess is a good, a good friend as well. And what's what's that like having two people in the industry? Does it does it work out because of hours and shared passion, or is it? Do you guys end up talking about food and wine like all the time? And well, I mean, uh, to be perfectly honest with you, I know a lot of couples who are. Uh, who have one person who's in hospitality and is used to, you know, working, you know, nighttime hours, and the other person, you know, works during the day, and that leaves a lot less time for them to be able to spend time together. Now, you know, you you know the deal. You work in restaurants. You're working all the time. I mean, we we have very very you know busy schedules, but at the same time, um, it allows a little bit more of a you know mutual time frame. Um, you know, furthermore, though, we both love food and wine. We love to cook. You know, love to entertain. So, you know, when time permits, it's it's a great resource for us to be able to do that together. And, you know, we roll in similar circles. So it's easy to have a lot of friends who keep the same hours and, you know, who keep the same time frame so we can get together for a late night tasting of wine. You know, we can grab some, you know, late night Chinese food or whatever together as sommeliers, as groups together. And what are what are some of the restaurants that we'll find the two of you at the most? Well, <clears throat> we love Fort Greene, which is our neighborhood in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, there's definitely a couple of great spots close by to us. Franny's incredible obviously awesome pizza and great wine list with you know funky really cool and also some you know more classic wines from italy um we're pretty close by to romans in our neighborhood um which is you know a, a, obviously a great spot you know with from the people from Marlowe and sons um and you know we're we have a couple of spots that we adore you know throughout manhattan and elsewhere i mean we're constantly trying new restaurants but prune is a classic you know on our list and you know obviously we're we're big fans of what you guys do you know lartusi la piccia which just opened and congrats because it's been Awesome to see you guys get such great press um, and, you know, a slew of other restaurants. But to be honest, with how many restaurants are always opening, it's like we're always trying to, you know, go and check out other spots. And obviously, you know, our friends, you know, in the wine world and the restaurant world, we're constantly trying to go visit them. All right. And uh, thank you. If you're going to leave our listeners with with one last tip, one last way to when they're going to approach a a sommelier at a restaurant or or uh, even someone at, at a wine store what what is one last tip that you can give them in order to to guide the way that they should they should talk to us <laughs> i guess my tip would probably be um 
Be as communicative as possible. Just be totally explicit. Say exactly what's on your mind. What is it that you like? You know, how much you're willing to spend. The more information that you give, the better. Because we're not here to judge. We're not here, you know, to make a judgment call on, you know, who you are, you know, based on how you look. We just want you to have great wine at a price point that you want to spend at and, you know, at in a style that you're really going to like. So if you had a great, you know, Pinot from California and you love that wine, tell your som or tell, you know, the guy at the wine shop that you love that wine. Be really explicit. And the more information that you can give, uh, the better the recommendation is going to be. And you'll be so much more satisfied. And can really create a great relationship with that person if you give them that more, more that much more information. And and I think that pays off such dividends, when you, especially when you go to a place like the Nomad, and you can tell, and you, you go there, like everyone is just bursting, brimming with hospitality. They yeah, oh man, we you love guys it. just want to like shower the hospitality. Like please just let us totally let us make you enjoy everything. And so I think when you give more information, um, especially at a great place like, like the Nomad, you allow you allow the sommelier and the, and the servers and the maitre d' and everyone to to do what it is that they're passionate about. Exactly. Let us let time. let us share our passion with you for sure. You know, we're all about that. You know, you give us an inch, we'll take a mile because we absolutely want you to have the best possible experience and we want to connect with you. That's really that's why we do what we do. All right, Thomas Pestujic, wine director of the Nomad. Thank you so much. You'll probably find thank me you, there uh, most Sunday afternoons drinking in the library as well. And thank you all to uh, those of you who are listening to In the Drink on Heritage Radio Network. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>